Throughout this year, we have been um, looking at different passages in the Bible that speak specifically to the subject of prayer. And uh, the psalm that Terry just read is one of those. So we're going to continue this morning in our series on prayer. And in Psalm 32, we're going to look specifically at how God blesses those who humble themselves before him. I think that each of us would agree there's not a day that goes by on this earth that we are not affected by sin in some way or another. I'm not just talking about the consequences of sin, of living in a fallen world. No, I'm talking about the sin that lurks in each of our hearts and disrupts our relationships with one another and most importantly with God. So the question then becomes, what do we do about it? Do we attempt to ignore it, to hide from our sin? Do we try to hide it from others, from ourselves, and then ultimately from God? The problem with that approach is the longer we hold on to sin, the more it has a tendency to grow and to fester. Sin has regression when it's left unchecked, unconfessed. Some sins may seem small, at least at the beginning, and certainly less consequential than others, at least at the beginning. Certain things that we take for granted, like as normal behavior, things like grumbling and complaining about different aspects of our lives, our jobs, our family members, maybe even the circumstances of our lives that God has providentially ordained. But persistent grumbling and complaining often leads to discontent, and discontent often leads to misery and despair. Sin always starts small, but when it's left unchecked, it grows. Just look For example, at the number of miserable married couples whose marriages often sometimes end in divorce. How does that happen? No one enters into marriage with the thought of being miserable or getting divorced, but there's a definite trajectory that leads them there. What begins small such as discontent, for example, with our spouse, maybe over just little things. I won't bother trying to name them. You know what they are. They're probably a little different for each of us. If those aren't dealt with, our attitudes towards those things are not dealt with, acknowledged and confessed as sin, repented of, they grow. They grow and they can then lead to a miserable, broken relationship. That's the trajectory of unconfessed sin. What starts as grumbling can quickly turn to anger, yelling, screaming, maybe even physical violence. It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. God offers relief from the crushing weight of our sin. In the life of King David... 
The man that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. The man that God appointed to be king of Israel. There was at least one example of that progression of unchecked, unconfessed sin. It's been described as the great error of David's life. It is certainly by no means the only sin that David ever committed, but it was certainly the most consequential. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah, you probably do, because it's, it's so closely identified with him. That great error that I'm talking about is recorded in 2 Samuel 11. In that chapter, we're told of David's adulterous relationship with his neighbor Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. So why should this be important to us? Because one reason is it perfectly illustrates the trajectory of sin, the progression of sin. I'm relatively sure that David did not just wake up one morning and out of the blue decide to commit adultery and later on murder. That's not how sin usually works. As is often the case, sin began with a look. In verse 2 from 2 Samuel 11, it says, Now when evening came, David rose from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. David, perhaps innocently enough, maybe for the first time, Notice that his neighbor Bathsheba, as the text goes on to say, was very beautiful in appearance. How long do you suppose he pondered that image of her before it grew into lust? Well, we don't really know. The text doesn't specify that. But think about your own heart. Think about your own heart. You notice something for the first time. Perhaps a new car, a material object. Perhaps somebody of the opposite sex. How long before that look turns to lust if we keep feeding it, keep dwelling on it? How long? David first looked, then he lusted, which led to adultery, and in an attempt to cover it up, he arranged for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to be killed in battle. And you know what ultimately, as bad as all that was, You know what ultimately was the worst part of this from David's perspective? The worst part from David's perspective was living with what he had done. He sought to hide his sin from God and to bear it alone. Why? He was too proud. I mean, after all, he's the king. The man after God's own heart, right? What should David have done? What should we do when sin entangles us? Despite, or perhaps because of his misery, David learned a valuable lesson. And that lesson is this. The Lord blesses sinners 
who prayerfully acknowledge and confess their sin to him. The Lord blesses sinners who prayerfully acknowledge and confess their sins to him. That's how God works. That's who he is. He's holy. We're not. But he's willing to bless us, to forgive us from our sins when we humbly, prayerfully confess them to him. Psalm 32 describes at least four ways that God blesses those who will humble themselves before him in prayerful confession. How does God bless sinners who humble themselves before him in prayerful confession? Well, the first way is this, and it's found in verses 1 and 2. God forgives sins. He offers a forgiveness of sins for those that will confess and forsake them, both now and and for eternity. Look with me at Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does it mean? For someone, in this case King David, speaking of himself, to be blessed by God? Well, simply put, blessing, as we often use the word, means that God has bestowed favor on a person. It's the result, and and it results in prosperity, happiness. Um, Broadly speaking, that's what it means to be blessed by God. God's blessing brings joy. We find that throughout the Bible. But too often, I think, it is tempting to think of blessing just in earthly terms. We might have a nice home, good health, a loving family, all of which are wonderful things, but those are earthly blessings. Not that we shouldn't regularly give thanks for them, we should, but they're earthly blessings. But the blessing that's described here in Psalm 32 is deeper than that. It has both earthly and eternal consequences. Why do I say that? Well, what does the Bible say about sin? God hates sin, right? And as you've undoubtedly discovered in your own lives, it brings misery to all of us here on earth. It's one of the major themes of the Bible, and it's an indispensable component in God's plan of redemption. Sin is why we need to be redeemed. As we're told in Romans 3.23, the consequence of unpardoned sin is death. The wages of sin are death. And when each of us dies, immediately after taking our last breath, we will stand before God. And if your sins have not been paid for by his son, you will be held accountable for a debt that you cannot possibly pay Your failure to pay that debt will result in eternal punishment, eternity in hell, under God's eternal wrath. That's why the depth of the blessing described in this psalm brings eternal, not just earthly, joy to those who receive it. And there's two reasons that I say that. The first is this. The first is sin has been removed. Look at the text. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. It's as if 
the sinful acts never happen. It's been removed. And not only is the sin or the transgression forgiven, we're told it is covered. It's removed as a factor in the sinner's relationship with God, now and for eternity. That's the true nature of forgiveness. Case closed. It won't be brought up again. It won't be held against you. The sentence of death that the sinner is under has been removed. That's an eternal blessing. Secondly, sin has not been recorded. The Lord, it says, does not impute iniquity. We will not be held responsible for our sins. It is removed, expunged from our records, like in a court case. Theologians describe this as the doctrine of justification. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us in place of our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. The penalty of our sin has been removed. The penalty of our sin is covered. But you don't need to be a theologian to understand that this psalm we're looking at today was written long before Jesus lived and died on our behalf. So how is it that David's sins are forgiven? Or for that matter, anyone who lived before the time of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul, writing concerning justification, quotes the the first two verses of Psalm 32, along with a familiar passage to us, Genesis 15, 6, where Paul reminds us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul does this to demonstrate that this is the same promise that God has made throughout Scripture. And it was received by those who believed his promise concerning redemption. Let's clarify what I mean when I say believed God. They didn't just believe that God existed. As James points out, the demons believe in the existence of God. No, what they believed was what God told them. They believed God's promise, not just of redemption, but of judgment. Judgment and redemption. They rightly feared God's judgment, and they trusted and received his promise of redemption. So who are those people then and now who receive God's blessing? Well, look at the second half of verse 2. We're told that it is those in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, I described to you earlier David's decidedly deceitful behavior with Bathsheba and Uriah. And if you're familiar with Abraham, the account of Abraham in Genesis you know that he was very capable of deceit himself. What about you? Are you deceitful at times? If you're honest, and you should be, the answer is yes, you are. And that's the first step in being one of those in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
recognizing the sin that's in your own heart, acknowledging the truth of Jeremiah 17, 9, where we're told that the heart, your heart, is deceitful above all things. Deceit or guile, as some translations put it, is often used in Scripture as another word for sin. What characterizes a deceitful person, a sinful person? Well, one commentator put it this way. There is no honest sinning. If a transgressor is candid to men, he yet deceives himself, robs his own soul, robs God, lies to the Almighty, and defrauds his maker. You cannot be an honest sinner. God knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The question is, do we? Those who are willing to humble themselves before God in prayer, to acknowledge and confess their sins to him, those are the ones in whose spirit there is no deceit. If you're a Christian, your relationship with God will be increasingly will be marked less by deceit and more by humble prayers of confession to him. There will be a willingness, a compulsion even, to prayerfully acknowledge and confess your sin to him and thereby continue to receive his blessing, not just of salvation, but of peace with him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me point out to you the good news of this passage. And that's this. No matter what you have done, no matter how bad you think you've been, no matter how much guilt caused by sin that you are carrying around, as long as you are still alive on this earth, it is never too late to pray to God and unburden yourself of the sins that you're harboring in your heart. If that burden is crushing you, Christ will gladly bear it for you. That's the blessing that he offers. And that's the truth that David shares in the next section of this psalm. Not only does God bless prayerful, humble, repentant sinners by forgiving them their sins, secondly, in verses 3 to 5, we see that God relieves suffering from guilt. God relieves suffering from guilt. Look at verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I mean, who among us cannot, to one degree or another, relate to David's description of suffering caused by the guilt of unconfessed sin? You know why that is? Why we suffer, sometimes even physically, under the weight of sin? It's because God gave each of of us a conscience. 
In Romans 2, Paul says that the Gentiles, even without having the law, instinctively do the things of the law. Why? He says it's because their conscience is bearing witness and their thoughts are alternately accusing or defending them. Have you ever heard the phrase, wrestle with your conscience? I think that's what's being described here. Wrestling with your conscience. And because we're integrated beings, we're two parts, each of us, we're physical and spiritual, we're mind and body, sometimes our spiritual struggles can affect our physical bodies in such a way as to cause physical suffering. Anxiety and anger and things like that can bring about physical suffering. Really what David is describing here has been called spiritual and I would add physical depression. In another psalm, Psalm 43, 5, the psalmist asks himself, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? That's a great question. We should ask ourselves that same thing regularly. What's wrong with David? Why is his soul cast down? Well, there are two causes in the text that describe his problem. The first is that he says, I kept silent about my sin. He, up to this point, had refused to confess his sin. And speculation is that he may have, it may have taken as many as 18 months before he unburdened himself of the sin that he was harboring with Bathsheba and Uriah. Why? Why would he do that? I mean, David, of all people, would certainly be well aware that God is merciful. Yet up to this point, he's essentially refusing God's mercy. Why do any of us, Christian or non-Christian, refuse to receive the offer of forgiveness that God offers when we confess our sins to him? Why do you hold on to your sin? There's undoubtedly a lot of reasons, but let me just give you a couple here, three different possible ones. One is this, it might be that you rationalize your sin. You convince yourself that what you've done really isn't that bad. Maybe it's not even really sin. I'll give you an example. Speaking harshly to your spouse or to your child or a family member when he or she does not meet your expectations. That's not really sin, is it? What does the Bible say? Well, Ephesians 4.29, we're told you're not to let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Only such as is good for building up, that it might give grace to those who hear. We're to speak graciously to others, not harshly. That's sin. Harsh words are not gracious, they're sinful. And they need to be treated as such, not rationalized. Secondly, you know what you're doing is sin, but you can't seem to stop. So, you choose just to live with it. You try to bury it, rather than to confess it to God. Maybe you've prayed to God. 
You've asked him to help you stop, and so far nothing has happened, so you just give up. You keep on sinning until you grow comfortable with your sin. Is that okay? No. No, it's not. You keep fighting sin, knowing that God, in some way, in due time, will use that struggle against sin to conform you to the image of his Son. Number three, and of course, as a Christian, you might think, well, I'm already forgiven. I don't need to confess my sin, right? Wrong. It's because that you are a Christian. You should be increasingly convicted of sin. It's God's grace that he didn't dump all of your sins on you at once when he saved you. He reveals them to us progressively over the course of our lifetimes. And we need to learn to call sin what God calls it. As we mature in our walk with Christ and our knowledge of him through his word and by his spirit, that's what we do. We increasingly learn to call sin what God calls it in anticipation of his promised forgiveness and mercy. That leads us to the second reason that David is suffering. This has been found in verse 4 when he says, Day and night, God's hand, your hand, was heavy on me. What's he saying? He's saying that it took many months of suffering and guilt, but God did not let up in convicting him of his sin. It might seem counterintuitive to us, But that's God's mercy, that he disciples or disciplines those that he loves when they need disciplining. Just as it's God's mercy that he forgives the guilt of sin, look at verse 5. He provides relief from that sin, the relief that we also desperately need. Listen to this. I acknowledge my sin to you, My iniquity I did not hide, and I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This goes beyond peace of mind. This demonstrates that when we deal honestly with God, he deals mercifully with us. Acknowledging, not hiding, confessing our sin is ultimately the answer to all of our earthly and eternal problems. God forgives sin. He relieves relieves the guilty of their suffering. And the third way that God blesses those who prayerfully confess their sins to him is that he preserves them in times of trouble. God preserves us in times of trouble. This is found in verses 6 and 7. That's the conclusion David reaches. Verse 6, therefore, meaning my conclusion is this, let Everyone who is godly, pray to you in a time when you might be found. Who are the godly? The godly are those who are God-oriented, as we said earlier. Those who believe God and are willing to humble themselves before him in prayer. Those who believe his promises of judgment and redemption. Today, that means those who are truly Christians. Those who genuinely confess 
with their mouths that Christ is Lord and believe in their hearts that he's been raised. And they're to pray, it says in the text, in a time when he may be found. How should we understand this? We live in a culture where the majority of the population claims to be Christian. Now, whether they are or not, I don't know. It's not my job to ultimately to decide. But if you're godly, you take sin seriously. And there will be times when God's Spirit is acting upon your conscience and will prompt you to do what David is describing, to pray to God, to humble yourselves before Him in confession. That's what it means to pray to Him at a time when it, might be, when it may be found. God, as we know, is always present. He can always be prayed to at any time. In fact, Paul says we're to pray without ceasing. But this is going beyond that. It says, the psalmist says in Psalm 95, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The godly respond to God's spirit, convicting them of their sin, and they prayerfully confess it to him. And then in the second half of verse 6, we're told, Surely in a flood of great waters, they, the waters, will not reach him. It brings to mind a person standing safely atop a rock caught in the midst of a flash flood with waters raging beneath him. I'm thankful that's probably not going to happen to us down on the river this next couple of days because it hadn't rained for so long. But we, can get, we get this picture. We, we can see this. That sometimes life is like that. We feel like we're standing on a rock and the water is swirling all around us. We feel like we're drowning due to all kinds of circumstances, some of our own making, some not. But God says the one who relies on him will not drown, at least from a spiritual perspective. Two clauses in verse 7 explain further God's promises to preserve us and secondly, to surround us. He preserves us. He is our hiding place. David says we find refuge. We're preserved spiritually by God, by his, the truth of his word, by his spirit, which help us, helps us to understand and to apply his word. We learn increasingly to think and respond biblically to all of life's circumstances, the waters that are swirling around us, when we depend upon God as our hiding place. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's a promise. The promise is that each of us, every single person, will face temptations. We will face trials. There's no temptation that's overtaken you. That's not common to man, the text says. They're inevitable. They're coming. There's no temptation or trial, which, by the way, is the same word used there, that's not common to man. But God says, I am faithful. I will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, I will provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. He doesn't say the trials and temptations will go away. He says he will preserve us in the midst of them. He will teach us to depend upon him and how, learn how to respond biblically to our trials and temptations. That's what it means to be preserved, not necessarily physically, but spiritually. He spiritually preserves us. And secondly, God will surround us with songs of deliverance. It brings to mind, for me, Lamentations 3, passage I love. In the midst of the destruction of Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah says, His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies know no end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He's faithful to sustain us, to deliver us from trials and temptations daily and ultimately eternally for all times. That's what it means to be preserved by God. God blesses sinners who prayerfully confess their sins to Him by forgiving them, by relieving their guilt, by preserving them, and then fourth and finally, God provides instruction that leads to rejoices. God provides instruction that leads to rejoicing. This is found in verses 8 to 11. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In the heading of this psalm, in your Bible, you may notice the word masculine, a masculine. In the New American Standard, it says that this is a psalm of David, a masculine. So what's a masculine? Not a word we use regularly. In the Hebrew, it is related to the word meaning to be wise. In the Greek, it's pretty straightforward. It's the same word used in verse 8 for instruction. And essentially, that's what this psalm is. It is God imparting his wisdom and instruction to us And he is instructing us through David. David is giving instruction to his audience based on his own experience with sin and God's mercy. From a practical standpoint, I find that to be some of the most helpful type of instruction we can receive that which is the instruction of a, a sinner and who encountered God's mercy and the results that followed his testimony, if you will. In fact, I think this is a great example of how we are to disciple one another. The transformation that God brought about in my life is one of the things that attracted me to the study of biblical counseling. Which, by the way... I think a better term for biblical counseling is practical theology. Because that's what God's Word is. God's Word is practical. It instructs us. It speaks to us about all matters of the heart. It teaches us how to flourish as His children. Before I became a Christian, I imagined... Christianity and the Bible to be no more than a bunch of rules that I had to follow that would intrude on my perceived pleasure. Turns out, many of the things that I pursued 
for most of my life ended up being anything but pleasure. Just like David. When he lusted after Bathsheba, it felt good at first. But soon, the things that once felt good to me became entanglements of sin. Until, by God's purest grace, as my brother Sam Carl was fond of saying, God saved me and began to instruct me by his Spirit through his word, and by using numerous brothers and sisters in Christ, many of you who are here today. Christians are instruments in God's hands. We're used by him to teach one another what it means to follow Christ. By God's grace, I began to, he began to use me to disciple others. And I suppose, not unlike David, God determined I was qualified because of all the messes I made along the way that he had to clean up after me. But isn't that how David is instructing us? David's telling us about the misery of his sin and the goodness of God to forgive him, to relieve him of his suffering, to preserve him in times of trouble and to instruct him so that he might flourish, serving God and serving others. But look at verse 9. There's a warning here. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. I don't know about you, but the phrase that comes to mind here is stubborn as a mule. You sometimes feel like you're stubborn as a mule. A mule who has no understanding or forgot everything he once understood, who has to have a bit or bridle to keep him in line. Even though you know your Bible, how often do you fail to live like it? You might start the day with a devotion, daily Bible reading plan, as you should, but then you step into the world and sometimes it seems like everything you learned that morning goes right out the window. But David's telling us we should not be like that. We're not to be like stubborn mules. We have no excuse to act that way all the time. As Jesus promised his disciples, we have a helper. We have the Spirit of God and the Word of God to guide us. We gather here each week to sit together under the teaching of God's Word. We have God's people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to come alongside of us. None of us is perfect. But if you prayerfully pursue the things of God, then it can't be said of you that you are acting stubbornly. It's when we fail to pursue God throughout each moment of each day that he gives us on this earth, that we are given over to stubborn behavior. And if necessary, if you're a Christian, he will use discipline to keep you in check. He will use the bit and the bridle, if need be, to keep you from kicking against him. And in verse 10, we're told, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. See the contrast? See the choice? Pursue sin, pursue wickedness, and just as David did, you will find sorrow. But trust God and his loving kindness will surround you just as David learned and he is teaching us. That's how we are to flourish on this earth and for eternity. We are to be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. The joy and the blessing that's found here is not some giddy, unrealistic, 24-7 happiness bound up in earthly pleasure. No, this is describing rejoicing in the Lord himself, abiding in him, and who he is, who he has revealed himself to be to us through Christ, the living word. If you're a Christian, that's what preserves and sustains you, how God blesses you. No matter the circumstance, he blesses you when you are humbly dependent upon him. If you're not a Christian, this is what you desperately need. You need the blessing of God's forgiveness. His relief from the guilt of sin. His preservation in times of trouble. His instruction that leads to rejoicing and flourishing, you need to prayerfully humble yourself before him. Just like David, who became entangled and weighed down by sin, many are the sorrows of the wicked. But the one who trusts the Lord, God's loving kindness will surround him now and forever. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we give thanks to you this morning that you have gathered us to worship you and to explore the truth of your word together. We thank you for your faithfulness to forgive us of our sins when we humbly confess them to you. We thank you that the forgiveness you offer brings relief from our guilty suffering, that through your Son we have peace with you forever. You preserve us, you instruct us, you teach us how to be instruments in your hands so that we may serve you and serve each other for as long as we're on this earth. We pray, Lord, for those who have yet to receive your mercy, that today would be the day that they would humble themselves before you in prayer, confessing their sin and receiving your mercy so that your name is glorified now and forever. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.